Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 315, Jewish Games. Presented by Dr. Jessica Hammer and Chris Hall. Jessica Hammer. This is Chris Hall, and we are here to talk to you today about Jewish games. Um, I thought we could start by just introducing ourselves and talking about sort of the position from which we come to this work. Uh, so, Chris, do you want to take it? Take it. Uh, sure. So, I'm Chris Hall. Uh, my pronouns are he/him. Um, I have been Jewish for about ten years, uh, and I've been. Uh, doing Jewish things for a little bit longer than that. Uh, I converted um, in 2010 after a sort of long struggle to find the right branch of Judaism that was, you know, the, the right thing for me, uh, even while knowing that sort of Jewishness was a core part of who I was. So that, that's sort of an interesting topic we can get into a bit later. Um, I design games, I play games, games are fun. Jess. Jessica Hammer, uh, I guess uh, full disclosure, Chris and I are partners um, and we have shared a lot of our Jewish life and decision-making over the years. Um, my background, I grew up as uh, an Orthodox Jew and as an Orthodox girl and woman, um, I had some real difficulties with um, the role I was expected to play in Judaism. On the one hand, um, being in an Orthodox community, uh, I found it very rich and very nurturing. Um, there's ritual and practice pervading every aspect of your life. Um, and on the other hand, uh, within that setting and within that system, I was a second class person. And um, I have many there are many amazing women, um, friends and relatives of mine who are working within the system to change it. But um, that was not possible for me. Um, I actually have left the Orthodox movement and I'm now a deeply engaged Jew um, in the egalitarian conservative movement. Um, and uh, I would say Jewishness remains a part of my everyday life and my everyday decision making. Um, but, uh, it, it's, uh, um, it's something that I've kind of changed my relationship with over time. Um, and for me as a game designer, uh, so my day job is actually in games. I'm a professor at Carnegie Mellon University and I make games, um, as part of my research practice. So I've had the opportunity to make some games that explicitly address Jewish themes. Uh, the one you may have heard of is Rosenstrasse, co-designed with Mo Turkington, um, which looks at 
uh, the relationships between Jewish women and non-Jewish men in uh, 1933 to 1943 Berlin under the Reich, right? Lighthearted little piece. Uh, so, um, but being a Jewish game designer influences every game I make in every way I make it. That, um, you know, one of the most powerful moments for me as a, a, a Jew and a game designer was when uh, our game Rosenstrasse uh, was, was selected for Indiecade and they sent me the email and Indiecade was on a Jewish holiday and I had to figure out how I was going to navigate that gap of observing the holiday and finding a way to still participate in the festival that was honoring my Jewish game without honoring my Jewishness. So there's just a lot of um, sort of, I don't know, um, stretchiness and, and, and ambiguity and conflict. Even when my games are not about being Jewish, they're still Jewish, right? In that I'm making them under the circumstances of being a Jew, um, an observant Jew living in a country that does not respect or recognize my life. So maybe let's talk about what it means to be Jewish. Um, you know, you, you, you just talked about uh, how your Jewishness influences your life as a game designer and as a human being. Uh, what does it mean to be Jewish? Yeah, that's a really good it's question. An easy question. No, oh, no, yeah, uh-huh, no. Unfortunately, it's not easy. And that's because um, the the sort of larger culture that we live in um, has a very um, non-Jewish understanding of the categories that you would even use to describe Jewishness. So if you start to describe Jewishness as a religion, it kind of stops making sense pretty quickly. Um, there are some people who want to talk about Jewishness as a race, which is always really weird because that comes from race science that is deeply anti-Semitic, right? And that's not what Jewishness is either. Um, and so, and there's also this impulse to kind of cast um, orthodoxy, right? Which is how I grew up as sort of the most authentic form of Jewishness because it is in some ways the most visibly different, right? From the, the sort of um, uh, secular world of America's quote unquote secular world of American culture. And so, just to give oh, some background there. Um, thank you, thank you. I, 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 having come to Judaism late in life, I often am the, uh, find myself in the role of the translator from Jewish to English. So or Orthodoxy is one of the three major strands of Judaism, um, which are Orthodoxy, Conservadoxy, uh, the conservative movement, and Reform. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, this is sort of from most right to most left, like reform is the quote-unquote least observant, most liberal, but it doesn't... It doesn't really fit way. those categories <laughs> either. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah. And we'll, we'll... Yeah, good. I'm, I'm making a note. We'll talk about yeah, this after yeah. we're done explaining. Um, uh, no, but so so uh, maybe maybe to dive into that, um, I think I think it's important to recognize when talking about Jew Jewishness, that the Jewishness is a, is a very fuzzy category, right? That you have uh, people who, are, who do not consider themselves in any of those three categories that I just outlined. There are sort of smaller branches of Judaism, the Reconstructionist movement, for instance. And there are also many, many people, uh, possibly the majority of Jews, aren't part of any of those sort of major religious strands. And those are all organized around 
kind of what people do for observance, what people do in the synagogue. But there's also this sort of ethno uh, piece that Jessica was just talking about. Uh, people who, you know, have uh, matzo ball soup on Friday night, um, but maybe you have no desire to go to a synagogue. And they're, they're just as Jewish as anyone else, right? It's the formal term that people use to talk about Judaism is actually an ethno-religion, that we are simultaneously a people, a, a tribe is actually probably the best English translation of what we are, um, and we are also a religious group, and that coming into one brings you into the other, right? They are things that happen together. So if you convert to Judaism, it's not like joining a religion in the sense that you may be familiar with. It's more like joining a family. Um, and that is a big, diverse, brawling, messy family. Um, one of the cultural constants of Judaism uh, is arguing. We love to argue. We love to ask questions. We love to challenge authority. Um, and uh, Jews also, uh, you know, because of this, um, Jews have come from very different cultural backgrounds as well. So this is one of the things that um, is, is challenging to talk about Judaism, which is that Chris and I are both what's called Ashkenazi Jews, myself by family tradition and Chris by marrying my family tradition. Uh, but um, this is the kind of culture of Eastern European Jews that you may be familiar with, you know, with uh, eating matzo ball soup and... Um, uh, uh, now I'm trying to think of other Ashkenazi things and uh, chopped liver and singing. Latkes, potato Latkes. There, there's more, a lot of food more, involved. A lot of food. Food. Jews love food. Uh, that is also common. But there are other major branches of Judaism that are, if you think about it, like they share customs, they share culture, whether or not they share, there are differences in practice. So you can have the same kinds of practice but have different cultural reference or vice versa within Judaism and again be just as Jewish. So Sephardi Jews are um, Jews from Spain and North Africa. Um, Mizrahi Jews are Jews from uh, what is now the Arab world and um, there are other many other smaller Jewish traditions um, there are Jewish traditions in India. There's uh, Ethiopian Jewish traditions. There's um, uh, a, a Russian Jewish tradition that has kind of diverged with, really within the last hundred years. We're seeing some sort of cultural uh, 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 building of Jewish community and culture there that's pretty amazing. Um, and so uh, I think that the, the, if you're going to take anything away from this portion of what we're talking about, it's that. Judaism is, if you are not Jewish, Judaism is probably not a religion in the sense that you understand it. If you start thinking about it as a religion, that's okay. Just remember that you should also be thinking about it through this other lens of peoplehood. And that peoplehood is big and diverse. It's not, and we don't want to reduce it or flatten it to a single set of cultural symbols. And that's really important when you're designing Jewish games. Anything else you want to say about what it means to be Jewish, Chris? So I think we've talked a lot about what divides Jews, but um, maybe we can talk, and, and you know, I, I don't want to lose sight of games either, but 
talk briefly about what unites Jews, right? Um, and I think that there is a shared set of uh, cultural and religious practices, right? I'm, I'm thinking around a shared understanding of what the holidays are, of what Shabbat is, uh, uh, the, 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 the weekly day of rest. And also, um, I'd say almost a, a shared mentality, too. I think Jews are very uh, used to being a minority and being under threat. And I think that that is a core part of Jewishness as well, um, as it's evolved in the last, you know, thousand years or so. Um, to the point that, you know, one of the last questions I was asked as a convert, the, the rabbis uh, who were, you know, uh, going through the conversion process with me reminded me that to join the Jewish people was to place myself in danger, that, uh, you know, there were people uh, in every generation who would try to destroy the Jews. And was I sure that I wanted to take this step and link myself to the Jewish people? Obviously, I said yes, but, you know, the fact that this was a fundamental question, I think, is very important to, uh, you know, the Jewish identity, which is a minoritarian identity. Yeah, and, and you know, that's sort of one of the things that I often think about in designing Jewish games is, what would it look like to design a Jewish game where Jews are not under threat? And as someone who I, you know, not only have I been Jewish since I was born, but I also come from a Holocaust survivor family, that sense, and, and so many of our holidays are centered around escaping genocide and miraculous escape and enduring through 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 everything right we are still here um it's it's very hard to imagine and um the challenge that i've been giving myself is is maybe that's something that i should be trying to imagine is in the same way that um judaism was originally created as a religion that was centered on a temple right um in jerusalem and the temple was destroyed and the rabbis had to reinvent what judaism was that for Judaism, Jews to no longer be under threat um, in an existential way, right? I don't mean safe in one country for a couple hundred years. I mean, for Jews to be safe in the world, um, it's almost unimaginable and I think would require a reorientation of a lot of what we know about being Jewish. The other, the last thing, because maybe we'll go on to our next question, but I do want to say one more thing, really important that text, a shared set of texts, and a shared orientation to them is one of the other things that brings Jews together. Um, that whether or not you practice, the way you do or don't practice is framed by this shared set of texts, um, which are uh, not just the, the Bible, the sort of Torah, but also a set of later texts called the Oral Law, the Mishnah and the Gemara, that codify what Jews do and many, many, many responses to those by people who are trying to codify Jewish law or just engage in thought experiments at thinking Jewishly, right? There's a process of how you argue um, that is almost sort of scholastic in the classic, you know, 12th century sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, engaging with these texts to derive um, how one lives in any given time. And that is something that, again, whether in the breach or the observance, connects all Jews, that these are th questions that we all engage with and grapple with, even when we disagree. 
Um, and I have a there's there's a, a story that I love to tell. It's it's the bacon sandwich story, right? <laughs> Which is uh, uh, this woman comes to a rabbi. She says, "I'm rabbi. I'm such a bad Jew. I I eat a bacon sandwich every Shabbat." And the rabbi says, "Only on Shabbat?" She says, "Yeah, only on Shabbat. Every Shabbat." He, he says, "Oh, so what a wonderful way." of remembering that it's Shabbat, right? What a wonderful way of remembering the Sabbath, right? That you're living within this framework of text and law. We call it halakha, the way that you walk. Um, that whether or not you are doing what it says, you're living within that structure. Um, and that is another thing that unites Jews across sects um, and across um, cultures. So let's let's maybe talk a little bit about Judaism in games, um, and I think we wanted to to address this in two different ways, talking about how uh, a game setting can be Jewish, as well as talking about how a game mechanic can be Jewish. Maybe we'll kick it off by talking about settings, um, and. Uh, you know, I think one sort of obvious way to think about Jewishness and settings is making your game about Jews, right? Sort of that's what uh, Mo and I did with Rosenstrasse is um, uh, all of the female characters in, uh, sorry, all of the male characters in the game are Jewish, right? And they have very different relationships to Jewishness. Um, they have different positions in society, um, but uh, they're all Jews, right? So. It's a game that's about Jews because it's about Jews, uh, right? On the other hand, there's kind of a danger of doing these very serious historical games about Jews because there's this flattening that happens of the richness of what it means to be a Jew and the joy of being a Jew and the dailiness, the mundanity of being a Jew that gets flattened into, you know, oh my God, it's a tragic story about the Jews being persecuted and dying. Um, and so... I think that one of the challenges that I would like to see more designers take up is putting Jews in all kinds of stories. And by the way, I include myself in this challenge, right? Um, not just stories that are about Jewish history. Definitely. Um, I mean, just looking to, to the future, right? I, uh, one, of, one of my favorite television shows is Babylon 5, because, partially because, it has a truly excellent Jewish character, uh, Commander Susan Ivanova, um, and it, it's it, an excellent representation of being Jewish because this is a character who has her own strengths, strengths and flaws, um, and also has this deep uh, Jewishness to her. Her father dies, and a rabbi comes to help her sort of make peace with this difficult relationship with her father, um, and 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 that that sort of integration of uh, many different religious paths in one one show featuring a number of characters is uh, really a, an excellent uh, representation of, of, of Jews in media. And you know, I, it'd be very easy to imagine um, a, a role-playing game in which you're, you're doing, doing a similar thing, where one of the characters in the game happens to be Jewish. And Sort of thinking, thinking that through and incorporating that in a meeting doesn't have to be the center of the game. But and off, uh, uh, sorry, often in uh, in science fiction settings, we assume that religion has gone away, 
right? This is uh, uh, Star Trek, right? Uh, Gene Roddenberry's vision was of a future with no religion. Um, that doesn't seem very realistic to me. Uh, religion has been going on for a long time. It may not be, uh, <laughs> you know, it may not be the same as it is now, but to say that uh, rationalism and religion are opposed is a very Christian view of religion, right? Judaism is rational religion. And it's very easy to imagine, we have many now, uh, Jewish, Jewish scientists and Jewish thinkers in a science, science fiction setting. I think it's more than just that. So first of all, um, and maybe this goes back to what is Jewishness, in, this is one of the ways that the Jewishness challenges what, a, a, what, it, what, what most people think of as religion. You don't have to believe in God to be a Jew, right? Um, there's a, a you know, joke that my father used to tell, um, you know, my, my deeply committed Orthodox father, you know, um, when his, after his, his uh, parents died, he would go to synagogue three times a day, every day for a year to make sure that he was saying the prayers for them, no matter where he was in the world, right? Never missed a day, like, you know, really serious. And the joke he liked to tell was this, is two Jews are arguing. Um, one is arguing that there's a God and the other is arguing there's no God. And a third Jew comes up to them and says, yes, God, no God, doesn't matter. Time to say the afternoon prayers. It's funnier in Yiddish. <laughs> um, and, and that is a very Jewish approach. Even among Orthodox Jews, there are many, many atheists. So if you're thinking about a future without religion, whether or not that's plausible, and, and uh, I... I agree with Chris. I think it's maybe not that likely, but if it's your fantasy and it's a desirable future, great, write that vision. But if that means you're erasing Judaism, then you're not just erasing religion. You're also, you're, you're giving the people who want to destroy us what they want. You're, you're destroying us as a people. You're erasing our culture. You're erasing our traditions. You're erasing our history. Maybe every remaining Jew is an atheist, right? Um, that is plausible. That could happen. But if you're saying that there is no Jewishness left, then you're playing into um, a lot of hateful tropes about what about what Jews, where Jews belong, which is you know destroyed and in the past. Um, and I would say you don't even need to have a Jewish character in your game. Just find where Jewishness fits into your setting. Right? Maybe that's an NPC. Um, you know, maybe that they, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, encounter Jewish traditions at a wedding they go to, right? Like, you know, find a place where you can signal to your players that um, your future is not one where you envision genocide. Which, thanks, don't, don't do that. Genocide is bad. If you take anything from the stock. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. And I, I think there's also, there's, there's uh, interesting things to be said about inc incorporating Judaism into non-historical settings as well. So settings that don't have Christianity, don't have Judaism, uh, don't have Islam, um, don't have religions that we know in the modern world. So, you know, uh, the default assumption here is, is Dungeons and Dragons, right? If you're, if you're playing a D&D game, um, it gives you this whole, you know, you have this whole setup of, of potential religions 
Um, but I think what, what sort of a Jewish take on that can bring to the game is the idea of uh, dissent and the idea of minorities, right? If you have a bunch of drow who are worshiping, is it Loth? Um, drow have their own issues even before we start to get into the Jewish stuff, but yeah. Fair. This is, this is the only D&D god I can think of on short notice. I apologize. Um, but, but if you have some, you know, D&D religion with its clerics and everything, it's, it's just, it, it adds depth and color to your world to think of, all right, if this, this vision, this village is, is all worshiping the same God, who, who, who's like the family on the outskirts of town? Who's still part of the town? Who's still part of the life of this, this little village, but has a totally different take on, uh, what God they worship, all right? The, 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 this, this, I would say is the Jewish take to a non-historical fantasy setting. And to take religion out of the temple, right? So right. another way to think about how you can put Jewishness, not Judaism, right? But to bring concept, not to just have your setting be replicating hegemonic Christianity, um, is, is think about how, how does people's religious practice influence what they eat, right? Um, or uh, I'm trying to think of like some of the most obscure Jewish stuff. So Chris and I are doing this project called Dafyomi, where every day for, we'll see if we make it all seven and a half years, we're studying one page of the Talmud. And there is just some crazy stuff in there. Like, um, uh, uh, does a pile of hay count as a partition between um, my courtyard and your courtyard? because an animal might come along and eat the hay. But the idea of holiness being in the details is a way that you can make your non-historical fantasy more Jewish, right? That the way you build your houses is holy, right? Um, the, the kinds of shoes you wear is holy. And that um, you could think about organizing the holiness as well around time rather than around space. It's not that you go to the temple to pray, right? There's a saying, you know, Christians build their cathedrals of stone and Jews build them from time. So these are some ways that you can make your non-historical fantasy um, feel more welcoming, not just to Jews, by the way, but to other people who are not part of hegemonic Christianity or a religion that shares its characteristics. Um, so these are some of the things that, that, that you can work with. Um, historical fantasy is its own whole barrel of worms. Um, and, uh, Chris and I have both played and run a lot of historical fantasy ga uh, historical games that involve some kind of fantasy component. Ours Magica, uh, we ran for, what, five, five years? Um, and that's, uh, it's, it's tough thinking about how you incorporate Jews, because, um, a lot of history involves dominant cultures being really terrible to Jews. And the heroes of your historical fantasy, when they're seen from a Jewish perspective, are almost certainly, um, you know, terrifying exploiters and murderers who at best will allow us to live, you know, um, peacefully if we are profitable enough for them. And that, that makes it really hard to think about your the sort of traditional characters like you want to play a crusader in a historical game congratulations right like you're now 
you, you're there are still tradi Jewish traditions alive today to commemorate the thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews murdered by crusaders. Um, and we have specific prayers to remember them. We don't forget. And so, you know, I don't know what you do about this, to be honest, you know, you're going to design the game you're going to design and you're going to play the game you're going to play. Um, but I want you to understand this. And to have this perspective as a lens that you can look through when you're working on game design. Anything you want to add, Chris? Um, no, I, th I think I'm good. All right. Maybe we can stop for questions because there's been a, I think we've done a good job of introducing concepts. Um, there but maybe are a there's... lot of questions. Oh, okay. okay. People cool, are cool. so here for it today. Uh, so I think the best question I think we have to start off is, from Lilol Moy, or Lilo Moi, I am sorry if I am mispronouncing your name. Um, but as a minority within the already tiny RPG community, do Jewish designers have an obligation to make their games accessible to Gentiles? And can you please explain Ooh. what a Gentile is? <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. So, so, go so ahead. A, a Gentile is someone who's who's not Jewish. Um, but that, that that's a, that's a really good question. Um, look, I, I I don't I don't know that I, I don't want to say that a Jewish designer has an obligation to make their their games accessible. Um, if you if you're if you created a game that's from a particularly Jewish perspective, if you're you know the 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 game I have I have not written one of many games I have not written is the dispute uh, disputatio uh, right the the uh, uh, Talmudic scholars debating in in the 13th century game. Um, I'm not sure this game is accessible to me. Uh, it might be accessible to a Jewish audience. It certainly would not be accessible to a non-Jewish audience. And I think that's great. Like I think there should be, you know, th th there's room to create games of all types that may have as narrow an audience as you know the people who live in your house, right? Yeah. I agree. I think the obligation of Jewish designers is to be true to the game that they want to make. Um, but I actually think that we should not set the bar too low for what we expect from our non-Jewish players and peers. Um, so uh, I th if, if you need to do some research to play my game, awesome, right? Like, that's fine, right? We expect people to read 50 page, you know, 500 page rule books for some kinds of games. So you can, you know, you can go and read, you can go and read a couple chapters about Judaism or you can go and look stuff up on Wikipedia. I don't have a problem designing games that have that kind of barrier to entry. But I think there's also, um, you know, we are a tiny minority of a relatively small community, but actually there's an enormous, um, because Judaism is so focused on ritual and practice, there are actually a lot of spaces where you can bring role-playing into Jewish spaces and play with people who are not role-players. So, for example, I've run role-playing sessions at my synagogue with, for people who had never role-played before where uh, the average age was 70. And there are tools in Jewish life that you can use to make this stuff really, really easy and approachable. Um, I know someone who runs, she calls it bibliodrama, not role-playing, but on the holiday of Shavuot, which is the holiday, our holiday of uh, books and cheese, basically. It's a holiday where we celebrate scholarship and learning and also 
our love for dairy foods, uh, despite the fact that um, many, many Jews are lactose intolerant. Doesn't matter. Cheesecake. Um, the, so she runs basically a role-playing session every year at our community celebration. And so I think that as Jewish game designers, we don't just have to be speaking to the role-playing community. I actually think that we can speak to, oh, hello, Kat. Uh, I think that we can speak to Jews who are not role players and role players who are not Jews. And I think that one of the things that games can do is it can make Judaism accessible and interpretable to people who are neither role players nor Jewish. Because Judaism is, there's this phrase, na'asevinishma. It means I will do and I will hear. And this is what the Jewish people say at Mount Sinai when they're accepting the Torah, right? This is like a fundamental part of the Jewish story. I will do and I will hear. That to be Jewish, you have to do Jewish. That understanding comes from practice. And so the idea of making role-playing games, they don't have to be low-barrier games, but role-playing games that can actually help people see the world for a short period of time through a Jewish lens, to me, is really powerful. And I think that game designers should have the freedom to pick how they want to relate to these different choices and make the game that is meaningful to them that they think they can best make. So that actually ties into my personal question. We've talked a lot about games that are distinctly about Jews, but could you flesh out a little bit about how can you make a game Jewish when Jews are not the focus? Chris, sure, can you talk yeah. about the can you talk about the, the atomic the, the game? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so th this was this sort of bleeds into um, we were going to talk a little bit about Jewishness and mechanics rather than setting. Uh, so uh, Jess and I wrote a, uh, a LARP for a Nobilus, which if you're not familiar with, is a, a wonderful uh, role-playing game, um, a, a, little, a little related in the same space as the Sandman comic book. Anyway. Um, Scale urban fantasy. Urban fantasy, of. thank you. Sort of. Yeah. Mythic. Very mythic. Very mythic. So the Atonement game was an exercise in... Um, helping our mostly non-Jewish players understand the philosophy and the, the rules, really, behind uh, atonement um, in Jewish tradition. So on Yom Kippur, uh, we, you know, one, of the, one of the major Jewish holidays, uh, we, uh, we are forgiven for our sins, but it's, there's a whole process behind that. It's not just a process of uh, fasting, which is the ritual of, of Yom Kippur, or going to synagogue, it's a process of reaching out to the people you've harmed and asking for their forgiveness, hopefully getting it, but you know, there, there's no obligation to forgive, only an obligation to ask for forgiveness. Um, and in many ways, it's, 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 uh, it's atonement and forgiveness being granted by another person rather than by a supernatural entity. And, can and, I sorry, can, can yeah. I pause you for one second? Talk about a little more more about atonement versus forgiveness, because there's Please. a really important distinction there. Um, that we live in a society that sees forgiveness as something that um, uh, sort of a, a, a victim extends to an offender out of charity, and like it shows that you're a good person if you forgive. Um, uh uh, like Judaism doesn't doesn't mess with that, right? There's actually a process that the person who did the wrong thing has to go through. 
And um, you're not even allowed to ask for forgiveness until you've done a number of things. Uh, the first is um, recognition. You have to admit in public, in front of someone else, what you did wrong. And you must be specific and concrete. You can't say I'm a bad person, right? has to be, I wronged so-and-so when I did such-and-such. And I recognize that it was the wrong thing, right? Then you have to make restitution. Now, there are some things that you do wrong that you can never make restitution for. This is part of why Judaism has a code of conduct for speech uh, called Lashon Hara. Because if you spread a rumor, for example, you can never find everybody that rumor has reached. You can never actually make it right. On the other hand, if you steal from someone, you can pay back the money that you stole. Like, there's a concrete way to make it right. And there's a whole bunch of laws around the restitution step. Then you must refrain, right? Meaning you have to be in the same situation again where you have an opportunity to commit that sin and not do it because nobody needs to believe you that you've changed until you've shown you've changed. Then and only then are you allowed to ask for forgiveness. And this is, I see it in so, I see it in online community dynamics. I see it in our political sphere. I see it all around me. This like toxic notion of um, for forgiveness without atonement. And so this game is specifically about doing all the things you need to do before you can engage in the process of forgiveness. And by the way, even if you do all these things, the person who's supposed to forgive you, like, they have no obligation to forgive you. They are allowed to say, I'm glad, but I don't forgive you, right? And only if you've gone through this whole process and the person repeatedly refuses to forgive you and you keep doing your best, then and only then is God allowed to forgive you, right? But that person is never obligated to forgive. So, so with all that in mind, I'm going to turn back to Chris. Yeah. So in, in this game, we, we took that, that four-step process that, just, that Jess just laid out and incorporated that into the game mechanics. So that the game mechanics sort of made that the truth of this universe this is what it means to atone. And um, then we had a number of different characters who, a few of whom were Jewish, but most of which were not. Uh, most of whom were human and some of which weren't, right? We had, we had dragons trying to atone for burning down villages. Uh, and seeded the game with you know, sins, things that people, the characters had done wrong uh, through a workshopping process so that uh, the players felt a certain amount of ownership of like, oh yes, like it's not just that my character sheet says I burned down that village. I decided during the workshopping process that I burned out that village. So the, the players felt a sense of ownership over these things that they'd done wrong. And then over the course of you know the three or four hour LARP, um, the characters or the players brought their characters through this multi-step process of uh, atonement of, of uh, making right what they had done wrong. Um, and obviously some of them were successful and some of them weren't because the nature, you know, the nature of atonement is that it's not preordained that you're going to succeed, right? It's, it's almost meaningless if you know you're going to succeed. Um, so so that, that's a, a way that we were able to bring a Jewish concept into a game without the game being about Jews. And the game, what we did, again, happened to have a couple of Jewish characters, but we could have easily written the game without any Jews in it, and it still would have been a profoundly Jewish experience. Okay, so moving on to the next question. From Lady Lakira, 
what's the culture of critique among Jewish creators and Jewish games? And if, is there any critique using a Jewish lens in regards to a non-Jewish game? That's, that's an interesting and difficult question. I don't really think I'm qualified to talk about Jew, Jew, the culture of Jewish game designers because, you know, two Jews, three opinions. Jews, Jews, Jews disagree. Oh, no. Chris, are you frozen? Okay, so Chris is frozen, so I'm going to answer this one solo. Um, uh, 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 I'm sure he has something to add when he gets back. Um, what I will say is that there's a concept in Judaism that, oh, hey, Chris, that was faster than expected. Yeah, Chris? I'm back, I'm back. Oh, God, okay, yeah. good. So I was just about to talk about... Um, the notion of holy descent. Um, and I think that if we want to think about, maybe I'll reframe your question to be about critiquing Jewishly, right? Um, there's a tradition in Judaism that there were two schools of rabbis, right? One of them, there was this rabbi called Shammai, and he had a whole fan club, right? Everybody loved his stuff. Uh, Shammai, you make all the right decisions. They were called Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai. And then there was Hillel. And Hillel disagreed with Shammai on a whole lot of things. And there were his fans, right? Beit Hillel. And these are people who disagreed on some really fundamental things about um, sort of Jewish life and practice. So, for example, who's allowed to marry whom, right? What disqualifies someone from uh, uh, certain kinds of marriages? These are things that would have a very practical um, outcome on their life. And the, um, they got in some really serious debates, right? They would argue with each other for pages and pages documented in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, um, going back and forth saying, no, this proves my opinion, but this proves my opinion. Oh, no, wait, this disproves your disproof of my proof. So now let's go back and, oh, no, I have a new disproof for your original proof. I mean, you need, like, you need flowcharts to figure some of this stuff out. Um, and um, yet, it's, it is talked about as what's called a machloket l'shem shamayim, disagreements for the sake of heaven, meaning that they were both truly committed to understanding rather than to winning, and that they retained a sense of stake in each other's social lives, even as they were debating these intellectual issues. So the Talmud actually says, even while they were arguing the marital laws, um, people from the school of Beit Hillel and the people from the school of Beit Shammai would get married to each other, right? In other words, they recognized that the decisions they made had to reflect the well-being of their whole community. They were not excluding people from being Jewish and be, or being human, right, from being on the inside. And the Talmud actually tells us that... Um, we rule generally the you know when there's a disagreement between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel we agree with Beit Hillel Beit Hillel wins and why does Beit Hillel win um there's a, a a long discussion of this in the Talmud right so somebody goes well maybe a voice came down from heaven and told us that Beit Hillel was right and um 
uh, as Chris Chris may tell you in a, about in a little bit, right? Jews don't do voices from heaven. If a voice from heaven came down today and said, Jess, you know, here's what the right thing to do, my responsibility is to say, sorry, voice from heaven, I'm Jewish. We do things the Jewish way, and you you don't you don't get a vote. Um, uh, and so they keep discussing. They reject this hypothesis that you know uh, God says Hillel is right. And they say, actually, the reason why we, we um, choose to follow Beit Hillel is because when Beit Hillel would teach, they would teach Beit Shammai's perspective before they would teach their own. That they were honoring and respecting difference and other points of view. And when I critique games, um, this is the approach. I try to make it a machlok at l'shem shamayim, a disagreement for the sake of heaven. That um, it's about... Um, bettering the world and our shared social situation through the ways in which I provide critique and disagree. Chris? Um, yeah, look, I, I, I think I, I agree with what you said, but I also want to flesh out the, the Hillel Shammai di uh, disagreement because, Excellent. you know, I, 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 as, as with many things in Judaism, two Jews, three opinions, right? Um, the Talmud also, in, in addition to telling us this is a holy disagreement, they also tell us about the time that uh, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai got together and knives came out, right? Like, I, I don't want to characterize this as a, a purely academic disagreement, right? This is a passionate disagreement. Um, and, you know, in that case, a violent disagreement. Um, and I think, I think the strength of that disagreement is then being able to still come back all right, and still, you know, marry into each other's families and still be part of one community, even with these strong disagreements. Okay. I, I think these questions are great. Honestly, Chris, are you okay with just kind of... This is great, yeah. This yeah is great. Okay, keep the questions coming in. Yeah, so this is jumping a little bit back in our conversation, but I do want to cover it as well. What are the denominal, uh, denominational and ethnic characteristics represented or underrepresented by the game Dream Apart by Buried Without Ceremony? So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't answer that. I would not feel comfortable answering that without a copy of the game in front of me. So, um, that said, one of the things that I like about the game is that it's not trying to represent Judaism as a whole. It's representing the 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 eastern european shtetl culture right so that falls within ashkenazi uh tradition in terms of jewish denominations the culture it's portraying is actually happening before the modern Jew jewish denominations arose so at the time the big division was um between the hasidim and the mitnagdim um and uh hasidim were jews who primarily related to judaism through um, uh, sort of stories and emotional connection and spiritual meaning. They did a lot of Musser, like ethical work, um, and and especially music and dancing and song. Um, so uh, my grandfather, before World War II, was actually a Gerer Hasid. Um, it means he was a, a member of one of these Hasidic traditions of the school of Gur, right? There was a place, so he would keep, you know. And um, he, 
he said that they would, you know, dance and sing for hours at a time, right? They would just dance in circles and sing nigunim, these wordless tunes, over and over again until their hearts were opened and, uh, you know, they were ready to sort of... Um, uh, uh, be Jewish with an open heart. It was, I mean, you know, hearing about, you know, in I, I went there, I went to Gur and saw the place where they danced. Um, is not so big, and you can just imagine it packed full of these men in their, you know, black coats and black hats, dancing in circles with their arms around each other's shoulders, tears pouring down their faces. That's sort of what Hasidism was at the time. It's now a little more complicated. We won't get into that. The Mitnagdim, on the other hand, were super intellectuals, right? They thought they were the ones fighting for a rationalist approach to Judaism. Um, and of course, they kind of, and I, I, I think that both of them are actually being represented in Dream Askew in different ways. Um, and I actually appreciate that, at least when I read the game, I didn't really pick up on the, the two factions used to really hate on each other. Right, so the Hasidim would be like, "Oh, these Mitnagdim, they're with their intellectual Judaism. They're just going to leave Judaism and stop practicing. I mean, they're practically Christians. All they do is think about being Jewish." And the Mitnagdim were like, "Oh, these these Hasidim, um, they're totally uneducated. All they do is dance around in circles. How can they take Judaism seriously when they don't know anything?" And so I thought that the game incorporated both that joyfulness and that intellectualness as well as what you might call just Judaism, right? The, 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 the Jew Pashut, the simple Jew who doesn't know or care about all of that stuff, but wakes up in the morning, you know, yes, God, no God, time to go to the afternoon prayer. Anything, anything you want to add, Chris? I'm not familiar with this game. I, I do just sort of want to say more generally, um, the, in terms of representation in media in general, uh, Ashkenazi Jews get, you know, 99% of the screen time. When you think of what it means to be Jewish in America, it is an Ashkenazi Jew, someone who eats bagels, right? Um, but there's, you know, I, I actually don't know the percentages. It, it's not 50-50, but it's, it's, you know, a large proportion of Jews in the world are Sephardic Jews, which is a different tradition and different customs still Jewish, obviously. Um, at the same time, I don't think that any game needs to represent all of Judaism. I don't think that's possible. Um, so I think it's great to choose a particular snapshot of the Jewish people, be that you know a denomination or a, a village or a group of friends, whatever it is, and represent that well rather than trying to capture all Jews. I agree. I would love to. See, I would. I would play the hell out of a game about the Persian Jewish community in LA, for example. Like, you want to run it? Sign me up. That would be amazing. Um, and and I think that you know, unfortunately, the reason why um, there's this dominance of Ashkenazi representation in the United States is racism. Yay! Right. So, um, uh, Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews are much more likely to read to people as not white, though men, some of them do, right? It's not like race and, and uh, you know, and, and, and Jewish tradition line up exactly. But um, basically, they, were, they went to Israel instead of coming to the United States. The majority of American Jews are Ashkenazi um, because of uh, American refugee policies designed to keep out um, uh, uh, brown people, basically. And uh, it's bullshit. 
but it does mean that representation of Jews in America do not represent the larger Jewish community. While on the other hand, uh, in Israel, where the majority of Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews have gone, um, the it's a what what if we were looking at this in American racial terms, which let's be clear, in Israel doesn't make sense. You know, you'd be looking at a, a majority minority country where the majority of the people um, would not be would not would not would not fit into both culturally would not fit and as well there are racist reasons why they were not able to come here we have four minutes left and i'd like to sneak in one last question perfect so can uh from a fool in his folly can you talk about the use of magic in jewish games perhaps addressing the concern about getting things wrong specifically sure um so I don't know that I have ever seen a game that does Jewish magic well. Um, even even Ars Magica, which is sort of my ideal for uh, many historical magic systems, I think does not capture magic well. So, I, so that means for me, I don't know how to do it and, and somebody should do it. Uh, it would be amazing to see a really excellent sort of Jewish magic um, game. Um, but I think I think part of that is uh, that the tradition of what Jewish magic is is so diverse, right? Um, the, the the sort of classic Jewish magic trick is making a golem, right? Um, but that and a golem is a particular legend that's tied to Eastern Europe, to Prague, um, and that's only sort of one part of um, the Jewish magical tradition, which, you know, especially in the Sephardic world, it would include like the Hamsa, uh, which is a little like hand-shaped uh, medallion that, that wards off the evil eye. And the evil eye is like a very sort of thing people people are worried about in, in uh, Sephardic Jewish tradition. Um, but yeah. It's a Jewish tradition yeah. too, right? But there's different customs. Like changing your name is powerful Jewish magic. Right. Right. And that is something that's present both, uh, it actually, I think, across Ashkenazi, Sephardi, and Mizrahi culture. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I, I, guess I, I would amplify what Chris has to say, which is that um, Judaism is, is much. Try not to reach for the obvious, and if you're going to reach for it, don't do it in obvious ways, if that makes any sense. So one of the best things that you can do is if you want to put Jewish magic into your game, um, buy a book of Jewish folk tales or Jewish legends. So for example, um, there's a wonderful story of uh, Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach walking between the raindrops to fool a group of demons, right? Or search for demons in the Talmud, right? Like, oh, uh, the placenta of a cat, if you burn it and you scatter it and then you rub the ashes from a rooster in your eyes, you'll be able to see the demons that surround you at all times, right? Like wild stuff that, you know, is, is not meant to be taken literally, but use that juiciness and use that richness as opposed to just flattening it into golem, golem, golem. Right. That's honestly, it's not so much getting it wrong. It's just being boring. Um, there are incredible uh, sixth century demon bowls from the uh, uh, Jewish community in what is now Iraq, 
where they would write these long te Jewish texts in a spiral around and then end with God's name at the bottom of the bowl so that the demon would be trapped at the bottom of the bowl. There's an amulet-making tradition. You can read about the Baal Shem Tov, for example, um, who is a Hasidic tradition. So I would say that... Um, and the reason I suggest you turn to stories is because stories will help you situate Jewish magic in a Jewish context. The place, the thing that you don't want to do is pull it out and make it generic or universal, right? So a golem, for example, is about um, protecting a persecuted minority of Jews from an immediate threat when all legal um, uh, approaches have failed. Right. And it represents the reason why the story of the golem is about the golem going out of control is because it represents the rage of those who the, the rage of moral injury, the rage that you are seen as expendable, as murderable, as exploitable, as exilable, whatever is convenient for you, that you can get justice no other way. Don't take that context out. And that is why I would say read the stories. And when you're making your magic system, keep some of the feeling of the story in the system. I, yeah, just, just to almost emphasize what Jess is saying, I think in order to design a really effective Jewish magic system, you need a really effective world in which it can operate. Right? That, that Jewish magic is addressing uniquely Jewish problems in the world, whether that's you know, Christians oppressing us or there are demons hanging out in ruins. Um, if, if, if you don't have a world in which there are demons hanging out in ruins, then Jewish magic doesn't make sense. And With maybe that, that, I was about to say that. Good. We are out of time. Yep. Uh, so where can we follow you online and perhaps give you money? Uh, well, uh, I, you can, let's see. Uh, you can go to replayable.net is my website if you want to know about my work. Um, if you go to my Google Scholar page, scholar.google.com, you can search for Jessica Hammer. Actually recently wrote a paper about Jewishness in human-computer interaction research, which might be of interest to some of you. Um, and if you're interested in Rosenstrasse, you can um, uh, uh, search for us on, on uh, um, uh, uh, Kickstarter, and you can still uh, sign up via backer kit. Our digital editions are going out, but um, you know you can sign up anytime. Chris, um, are you? Do, do you I, want I'm to be internet of, enabled? I'm sort of aggressively not online. Um, I, I'm I'm restricted and on Twitter. If you want to see me retweet rabbis and politics, with <laughs> there's that, no, there's I... no reason to follow me. <laughs> Dude, it's great. He has a very well-curated Twitter feed. With that, I'm going to invite everyone to join us in the Panel Watch Party voice channel to continue this conversation on the Discord. Thank you, everyone, and I hope to see you there. Thank you. Thank you.